kind of hit a chord with me. I've got a perfectly good sermon right here. But when David talked about what is true, so much in introducing that song, Come to the Gospel Feast, I had to stop and remember what I wrote toward the last of my sermon that comes down at the end instead of what's maybe we need where we need to begin. We need to begin at this place in this season, in this time, getting ready to do what God has been preparing you for for years and years. I believe that thoroughly. I believe the calendar years 2016 through 18 are going to transform this congregation in ways we cannot even imagine. God has been unveiling and revealing to us in the past more than two years now, I believe, what our situation is, and we're beginning to see, I believe, what the opportunities are. Because you see, when we begin to concentrate on who we are, sinners who have feasted at the table of grace prepared by God in Jesus Christ, When we remember that every morning, every noonday, and every night, when everything we have and everything we are and everything we can come to be is simply a reflection of that which God has given us in his grace, whenever we finally get that out of the depths of our heart and stomach to our hands and to our words and to our feet and to our actions, then the church has the chance, and only then does the church have the chance To become not simply disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, but stewards of the gospel of grace that he has entrusted to the church. And until the church starts living that gospel of grace, I believe the church in this United States is going to continue to decline. That's what I believe. Because after all, if God can invest so much in his church on this country... And we can do so little with what he's given us. Why would God continue to invest in us? You say, preacher, you're sounding bad. I am. I'm mad clean through. I'm mad clean through for every person who, if they could just contact a few loving people who really love Jesus and love them more than they love their own comfort, their whole life could be changed. And that makes me angry. It makes me angry because so many people are bearing my Lord's name and we are accomplishing so little. I'm not talking about just here. I'm talking about throughout the United States. You say, preacher, don't you know we've just prayed for people going to Africa, for Dan and Carol, and taking another couple with them? We just prayed for Liz and she's going to India. We're doing something. Yes, Liz and Dan and Carol are doing something. I'm so glad you decided to pray for them. Thank you. That'll be good. And that's necessary. They need your prayers. And I, we're going to pray for them continually. But I want to know about your next-door neighbor. Are you praying for that person? I want to know if you've invited anybody to the gospel feast lately. Or if you've just gone about stuffing yourselves till you become fat spiritually. I started to say as phys- well as physically, but that's a little too self-convicting. <laughs> well, we just keep taking it in and enjoying it. But we don't make nearly enough effort to say we are seeking the lost. David's right. Sometimes we just take our sin for granted. It's been forgiven. We're going to heaven. Now all we got to do is live a few more 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or however many more years we have. And then we'll eventually get to heaven and we'll be at the gospel feast. Gospel feast is meant to be now. Now. It's meant to be lived in and out through the church. It's meant to be a risk-taking adventure by risky people who throw life on this earth 
to its proper place and elevate eternal life in the souls and concerns of other people above their own. It means feeding the hungry in a radical way. It means witnessing in a radical way. It means not being so comfortable that we only want to hang out with other comforted people of Jesus' clan. Are you listening? Because when Jesus came, he was surrounded by the throngs of well-doers and religious people, wasn't he? Walking down that street. You know, he didn't know what was coming up, or actually maybe he did. But he clearly saw it when he was the one that saw Zacchaeus, who wanted to see him bad enough that he would climb a tree, humble himself. If you will, he would go so far as to belittle himself, even the little man though he was, so he could see Jesus. Chief tax collector, rich, little man syndrome. (laughs) And they hated him because he collected taxes in excess. He stole from them. And he took money that other people collected from them and took a part of that too. He was a very rich man. But listen what happened in the presence of this very rich man. Listen to all these verbs in that short It's a short passage, just 10 verses. It says he ran to see Jesus. He couldn't see him. It says he climbed a tree. Can you imagine what the people were thinking and giggling and pointing at him? I can see it. I can see some of the pious sitting on the pews going, look at that stupid Zacchaeus. Jesus doesn't want to see him. He's a sinner. He steals from us all. The scriptures say he not only ran and climbed, but it says Jesus looked up. And when Jesus saw him, he invited him to come down and let him know he was coming to his house, which spoke worlds in that context and in that culture. I'm coming to your house to be your guest. And it says he hurried down, hurried down. Now, what happened? It got another verb. Those who are watching, the good people sitting on the front row, not y'all, of course. They begin to grumble. I can hear them, can't you? Oh, my gosh, if that person sits down next to me, what am I going to do? He's going to eat dinner with that man. What's he thinking? Contextualize it for us. Did you see who came to church today? Sat down right there beside us. We all know what they did last month. How dare they come to the gospel feasts and expect to hear about Jesus? You say, well, that's not us. Really? Really? How many people hang around you every day that are more sinners than they are saints? And what did you say to them? Did you go home with them? Did you invite them to dinner to try and encourage them to change their ways? Did you show that you cared about them? Did you change your schedule with your saved friends? So that you could hang out with your unsaved acquaintances? Do you ever fix dinner for somebody besides your family or besides your church family? Do you ever invite the stranger into your house? Do you ever think about what your life might look like if you made radical changes toward the portion of what you kept and between the portion of what you gave for others? This little man became a man with a great big heart after Jesus said he was coming to his house because he knew he was accepted. What did he say? He said, I'm going to restore 
four times everything I've stolen from people. Four times. That's way above what anything the law required. He says, I'm going to give half of all that I have to the poor. That's a little man with a great big heart. A great, big, grateful heart. I know y'all came expecting a stewardship sermon. You want me to preach on tithing, right? You want me to talk about giving to the hurts, talk about sacrificial giving. I don't really want to talk about any of that stuff. I want to talk about some another kind of giving. I want to talk about a giving that can't be held back, that is generous in terms of Jesus, and that it comes because of the grateful heart for the gift of salvation that you've received, not because there's a bill to pay at the budget, because I trust me, you cannot pay the bill I'm about to share with you. You can't do it. I'm about to, I'm working on a plan now that I'm going to present. Nobody knows this except a couple of staff people. So if you're on a committee and know that I should have told you this sooner, go ahead and take a deep breath. You'll be all right. But I'm about to deliver a challenging three-year plan for this church. I can hardly wait to share it. Some people are going to go, you want us to do what? I want to change the way you act. I want to change the way you spend your money. I want to change the way you risk. And I want it all spread out over the next three years. Till this town comes on fire because of the love that we have for them and not for ourselves. It's going to be radical. It's going to be hard to take. It's going to require whole shifts in behavior. It's going to be risky. It says on the back page of my sermon, which I've now elevated to the front. It's going to be risky. You're going to have to be willing to part with your security in order to redo and remake so that this church becomes obviously a symbol, a haven, if you will, for people who are crying out and hurting and trying to climb trees in Carrollton, Texas. It's going to become yet a larger growing missionary effort, not only in the places where we have established the love of Christ and are offering the feast, but in places we have yet to go. It's going to make a difference in your life because you're either you're going to either get on board or you're going to have to find another church. That's going to be different. That's going to be that big a challenge. You said, oh, wait a minute, preacher, we're here before you got here. Yes, and I'm going to be here after some of you leave. <laughs> I am. And you say, are you inviting me to leave? No, nope, but I've had a few funerals every year since I've been here. So I'm pretty sure some of you are going to die in the next three years when we're going to preach your funeral. It will be a lot happier place if I can tell stories about what you did in the last three years. Not what you did 30 years ago, but what you did recently. What you gave up recently in order to offer a gospel feast. You know what a feast costs? All you men say, I don't know. It's good. Because most of us don't know. And let's be truthful. I don't want to know. I know we have a feast at my house around the holidays. Sally works herself into a dither, which I've always made fun of. Constantly. I say, why do you worry about cleaning the house again? Why do you worry about all this food? Why are you setting the table like the Queen of England come in? It's just our kids. Our grandkids will tear it up in 30 minutes. Why are you in such a sweat? She's in a sweat, and I need to sweat too, or she, I'm going to be part of what's served up for the feast. That's the way it is. The only way I get around that is leave and go play golf until I think it's almost time to eat. Then I show up, and there she is. She is sweated. She's so tired by the time it's over, she rarely even eats with us till we're all through eating. She just does that. I think she's a little paranoid, but it's great for the purposes of this illustration. She has given her all to prepare the feast for the rest of the family. 
And brother, do they know it when she says, I'm not cooking this year, and one of them has to cook, because that's the standard, right? She's only got two girls, and they're both here this morning, so guess what? I'm not going to starve at Thanksgiving, so when Mama quits, you start. It's just that simple. I expect no less of two of you. Gospel feast in preparing it is time, time-consuming, costly in terms of your personal wealth, sacrificial in the terms it causes you to work hard until you wear yourself out doing it. I'm looking for a few Christians who are willing to turn the history of this church and this community in a different direction. I want a pastor, I want the last church I pastor to be a church that's known as, per, as a church who's seeking the lost, not just the people who walk in the door, seeking the lost. You're going to be terrified at what I'm dreaming. You are. I see 30 acres, part of it covered in a playground. It's going to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. I played on one like it in Little M. Cities do it for the welfare of the community. But churches, no, we build small, small kind of playgrounds and we hide it behind our buildings so only our kids can play on them. Right? That's what churches do. We're great at that. And we need that small playground. And it's going to be redone, by the way, too. There's going to be a playground built for the school that's coming. 500-plus children are going to be on our campus regularly in the fall of 2016. They got to have a place that's fenced and ready to play on. That's just a part of it. They're going to have to have an after-school program. I I can hardly wait to tell you what that's going to look like and those of you who are going to be working at it. (laughs) Mostly volunteers. There might be a paid job or two scattered around, but most of it's going to be out of your love for those children, 50% of whom who won't know Jesus or the church. The staff can hardly wait to start working five days a week at that, after that after school program. Right, Nick? Right, Brandon? Right, Cindy? That's double time Cindy, right? <laughs> they can hardly wait to work by getting you to work with them. You said, but preacher, we don't have enough money. Well, that's just because you haven't turned in your estimate of giving cards this year yet. Because when you get them, you're going to get them as you walk out the door. If you don't get them, then we're going to mail them to you. and We're going to spend 50 cents to send it to you. You can save 50% of your giving by just going ahead and taking your card home. But when you pick it up today, I want you to do something unusual. I want you to put it in your pocket or your purse. And when you get home, I want you to talk about it. Here's the way I want you to talk about it. God is calling you, I believe, To ask yourself what your generous estimate of your giving looks like. Not what you've done the last 20 years. What your generous estimate of giving looks like. And whatever that number is, I hope that you'll write it down on that card and turn it in. Because we're going to plan to use that and much, much more in the next three years. You say, where are we going to get it? I'm going to be recommending radical things like changing our note during this first two years of that time. I'm going to be recommending like we'll schedule a capital campaign three years out to start paying down and paying out this note. I'm going to be recommending that we look at a program where every one of us 
who so loves Jesus cannot wait to redo their will and to put a place in there for the tithe we've kept for ourselves and the generosity we wanted to give 30 years ago but couldn't that we'll be able to when we die. When you die and they read your will, it is a reflection of what you love the most. And if it's only about your grandkids and your kids, what does that say about the church of Jesus Christ? We don't even have an endowment fund in this congregation. 115 plus years old, and we don't have an endowment fund. How can you fill out a will and not want to leave some behind for the work of Christ when you've gone from this earth? How can we do that? It's getting really quiet now. Maybe I should go back to my safer sermon about poor little Zacchaeus. Poor little Zacchaeus wasn't so poor. He was rich. He might have been short, but he had figured out a way and contrived ways to get money out of everybody's turnip feed. Everybody. And that's why he was so hated. He had thought so much about his money that he hadn't been thinking anything about his soul because it would have gotten away of what God wanted him to do. So there's a question about this text that you have to ask yourself. You have to ask, and this is all taking place and happening, you might want to go back and just say, why did, why did Zacchaeus want to see Jesus so bad? You know the answer to that? The text is clear. Right? The text doesn't say anything. It doesn't tell us why Zacchaeus came. And that's a great thing for us to know. Because, you see, Jesus even didn't have to know why he was coming down in order to reach out and to seek him. We're so worried about the motivation. We love to save those who are really looking for salvation. If they'll take a seat in the first ten rows of the congregation, help pass the offering place, and teach our junior high, oh, my God, they can have a place in this house, right? It's easy to witness to those people. We love to welcome them. But what if we don't even know why they're here? What if they just walk into our building and sit themselves down right in the middle of this church family like they belong here? Oh, my Lord, how would that happen? Well, it doesn't happen very much anymore, does it? It doesn't. And it's not happening because we are not out there seeking the loss 9 to 5 and 5 to 9 every day and every night. We're afraid to talk about Jesus. We're so afraid we've quit seeking. You say, well, you're not talking about me. Well, glory, hallelujah to you. Because if you are seeking the lost, you are a minority, even in this house. And this is the most evangelical church we have in United Methodism in these parts. Did you know that? Don't tell everybody. It'll make them mad. But we are that. We are. And yet even here, we are bashful about seeking the good and the welfare of the sinners. And especially if they're big sinners. You know the ones, don't you? They're on our list of our top sin sins. And if they're committing those top sins, well, we're not trying to seek them because they're obviously lost already. Just like the grumbling crowd thought about that rich man up in the tree. That's why they're grumbling. Grumbling about him. Go to eat in the house of that sinner. They forgot their sinners. Have you forgotten you're a sinner? Have you forgotten you're a great big sinner? Have you forgotten that you don't like to say that you're a sinner? Because you obviously aren't saying much, and you're all sinners. I've met you. You're sinners. You may be saved, and you may be a saint of the Lord, but you're still sinning, and some of us are doing it quite well. Right? Only when you realize that are you ever going to start seeking the lost because you've still got one foot in the lost column. Every year, maybe every month, you pull back a foot and you leave an arm over there in the lost column. 
And every year you have to get taught some more so you can pull the arm back in, then your ear gets lost. Every time you turn around, you're falling back into your sinful ways, right? That's what it means to be human. We're good at sinning. We're just not very good at admitting it, right? See how weak you are? Y'all are weak. If I were black and asked that question, y'all be shouting the roof off. Yes, preacher, yes, preacher. But not us white Methodists, you know. We like to be calm about our sinning because we only have polite sins. We don't want to get too excited about it. You might mess with my savings plan. You might mess with my plans for what I'm going to do with my time this afternoon. You might mess with me until well, I acted, started acting different. Some of my friends might call me weird. Well, if you have friends and none of them call you weird, you're not very Christian. Because a lot of your weird friends aren't Christian. You're just not talking to them about it because you're afraid you'll make them mad. Better to let them go to hell than you make them mad, right? Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? It does hurt. It should hurt. Because hell is real. David's right. Methodist church, we're polite. We don't talk too much about sinning. Well, you know what? There, you can talk about sinning without talking about sinning. You can talk about sinning by showing its opposite, love. Radical, almost incomprehensible, unselfish love that people are looking for. Let me tell you about a witness from a few ladies that have started coming to our church. They've said things about y'all, and I think you ought to hear ought to know some of the things they've said. The name of the course was a course for single parents. We advertise in the community. We've had several show up who were not part of the church. You know what they say about a free meal once a week? They say it's a godsend to them. You know what they say about coming and talking with other people who are in the same boat? What they say about it? This is saving my life. You can't know how much this means to me. It doesn't even mean much to most of us to even make a place in our Wednesday nights for church. Because, I mean, after all, we've, we've been to church on Sunday morning. Methodists don't do that Sunday morning, Sunday night, and every Wednesday night thing anymore. We don't have time for that. I know. You know why you don't have time? Because you say yes when you should be saying no, and you say no when you should be saying yes. I'm glad I finally got this old. Y'all can't possibly run me off before I can retire. <laughs> I've reached that point. It feels pretty good today. And you say, well, you sound just kind of tacky. Good. You're getting my point. Because when, when we sing, come sinners to the gospel feast, we need to be preparing the feast. We need to be preparing it on these 30 amazing acres we've been given. Instead of sitting on 12 of it and watching the 18 of it grow weeds. We need to get rid of the weeds so we can put stuff out there so that the community will know we care about them and not about us. We're going to have to build three playgrounds. Isn't that pathetic? We are. We're going to have to rebuild the one we've had that's kind of pitiful for the preschool. We're going to have to build a new one that's fenced in for safety reasons for the new school. And we're going to build one right down here on the side of the street so when people come by and there's no fence around it, and they see the most gorgeous playground they've seen in Carrollton, Texas, they're going to come there to bring their kids to play. They're going to stream in from the neighborhoods when we're not even down there until finally we'll go, you think if we hung out down there with those people, they might come to church? Duh! Do you think if we showed we cared for them, they might actually think church cares about them? Duh! Do you think we can seek the lost by sitting on our... No, we can't. We have to get off of where we're comfortable sitting, and we have to seek... The loss. 
Just like you see on TV. You know the cartoons where they fire off a heat-seeking missile and it seeks its target and it's going off? we got to wander some until we find somewhere to detonate. And when we detonate, they need to be covered and showered in acceptance and love, sinners though they are. Because you know what? That ought to be easy enough for us. Because we understand what sin is. And if you're very honest with yourself, you know how sinful you still are. You've been educated enough. Now it's time to do something with your education. And when we begin to do something enough, we're going to need more education because we forgot how to seek. We're fixing to learn again. It's getting a lot quieter. Some of you are thinking, well, Doug gets excited, but then, you know, we don't follow through a lot. Well, nice Doug. They're going on vacation. And the impetuous, impatient, boundless, heat-seeking missile Doug is going to flare up for about three more years. And some of you are going to call the bishop, and he's going to ignore you. I'm just letting you know how that works. (laughs) And then he's going to come back, and he's going to be the same guy who's got the matches out and the gasoline out and is not satisfied anymore to watch a church continue to get smaller and smaller. There's no reason to be smaller. There's an unsaved world all around us. We just have to love them more than we love our comfort. We've got to climb our own tree and spy where they are and figure out what we can do to offer them the love that Christ wants for them. That's only what a grateful heart should do. It's like filling out your pledge card. I want you to carry it until you get back here next week. I want it filled out. I don't want to have to call 100 of you because you forgot to fill out your estimate of giving. Don't make me do that. It's a waste of my time. Actually, don't make me make Cindy do it. It's a waste of her time. (laughs) And Debbie, it's a waste of her time. In fact, I may do this this year. If you don't turn in your normal estimate of giving card, those of you who usually do that, I think I'm just going to call you all. And you need to know when I call you, I'm not happy. Ain't got a thing to do with how much you're going to give. It's got to do that you haven't been paying attention to do what needs to be done in a timely manner. I want those cards back next week. I don't want 50 of them left out. If you're not going to be here, you fill it out this week and you mail it in. Don't make us waste our time looking for it. You don't need to be holding back what you intend to spend for God. You need to be praying about it. You need to be filling it out. You need to get it back in here because we got work to do. There's a plan of coming. It's going to be wide-encompassing. It's going to make a lot of people nervous. If it doesn't make you nervous, it'll be a lot less than I think it is. And I think that's not going to happen. But it's a way to take the risk to see this church do what those dreamed it would do 15 years ago when they started envisioning being in this place. It's about striking while the iron is hot. There's enough of us here to be a mighty tidal wave of love. There's enough of us who've been saved enough to do that. We don't know why he came. Maybe he had heard the stories about this man Jesus who was eating with sinners, who was open to sinners, and maybe he just had to see if it was really true. 
Maybe he himself was feeling the pain of being excluded because he was a big sinner and he knew it. Maybe he guilt of the way he had been living was piling up inside of him. Now he had all the money he needed in the world. He was still miserable. Maybe he just needed a fresh start. And he wondered if this Jewish rabbi could be the answer to his trouble. Maybe he was conflicted, inner conflict, knowing that the things he was doing was hurting so many people who didn't deserve to be hurt. We just don't know. Maybe he was just curious. We just don't know. But we do know he ran and he climbed a tree. And when Jesus saw him and acknowledged him and invited himself to the man's house for dinner, the man was overwhelmed that one like this man would accept him. My friends, that is the pattern for real church. And it's time that the church of Jesus Christ in these United States, as well as Carrollton, started being the real church. I am praying that you're willing to sign up. I'm praying that you don't have a, simply a conflict. I'm going to give the church an out here. You know why Christians don't do as much as they should do? How much time do I have left? It doesn't matter other times, does it? So why should it matter today? I think I'm going to finish this part of the sermon. The reason many Christians do not do what they should do in these United States, I believe it's because what one author called a healthy conflict. Here's the conflict. We get saved. We start hanging around people who are saved. And that's such a better life that we start doing everything together as Christians. We start having football teams made up of Christians. We play soccer made up of Christians. And we don't. We don't go over there and play where those people aren't Christian. We want to be only around those people who help us be better Christians. And that is a good motive. That's a healthy desire. We need to want to be together as the body of Christ in order to study so that we can defend our souls against the attack of an immoral world, right? I mean, we all know that. So, you know, if you hang around with people who act bad, you're taught when you're teenagers, right? What have your parents said? Hang out with the good kids, right? Now, what you're told? Kind of? Sort of, maybe, maybe you're not going to tell me. Maybe they're not telling you who to hang out with, right? Well, I'm telling you, you hang out with anybody that looks like they need a friend. Be one to them. I'm telling you to invite the person to your house to eat dinner that nobody else is going to invite. I'm telling you to invite the kids that get in trouble and don't have good grades to your house. And when your parents complain about it and say, do you know who you're hanging out with? You say, call Doug. Just tell them to call Doug. You know what I'm going to tell them? I'm going to tell them they're doing what I told them to do. You ought to join them. Because the only way they're going to remain safe in that context of risking their faith and their morality, if you will, with those who don't have the same, is by learning that the power of God in them can be greater than the lack of the power of God in others. And they need to be telling you and encouraging you, it's okay for you to hang out within reasons. Now, if they start doing something illegal or unsafe, something that's going to hurt you or hurt others, you need to opt out of it, right? But you need to do it in such a way that it doesn't tear them down. You don't shout at them and say, you big sinners, I'm not doing that. That's not what you say, right? Instead, you say, you know, I get my fun in other ways, and so I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not going to be putting something in my body that can harm me later on. I'm not going to be doing risky behavior that might kill somebody else.
I'm not going to do that, but I'm still your friend and I care about you. And I wish rather than do that, you would go with me and let's go do something else that's fun, that's not so full of risk. You say, you know how hard that is to tell people? Yes, I do. How do you know that? I grew up in a small town. And the thing everybody loved to do in a small town, especially young males, they loved to drink beer. And even though they were 15 or 16 then, they could still get beer. Yes, I know they get it when they're 12 or 13. Now it's a different problem. It was a real problem there in Farmersville because you had to drive everywhere. You know who drove most of the teenage guys in my group when they were doing things to a certain level? Because I didn't drink. I still had the friends of the most popular people in school. I was still friends with them, but I drew the line there. I didn't do that because it was not safe and because my daddy would kill me if I did. <laughs> Those were two strong incentives. But I didn't ostracize them. Rather, I drove the car so that they could get home safely often. And that continued through college when it got worse until we were all separated. You need to know that the same thing applies to you. A lot of times you want to be safe with the friends you've already made. You don't want to risk making friendships with new people who have troubled lives and who are a lot of trouble. And this, let me tell you, it's trouble helping people avoid dying in eternal damnation because they haven't all been brought up in church. In fact, most of them have not now. We are back to biblical times almost where most of the people don't really love Jesus. Most of the people don't even know if God exists. Most of the people, despite what you think in your head, because the only people you hang out with are Christians, most of the world doesn't think like you think. They don't have a Christian worldview. They have a selfish worldview. And they will think you're silly for inviting them over and feeding them over and over and over again. But sooner or later, they're going to understand you did that out of love for them. That's what it means to seek the lost. It doesn't mean to seek those who are like you. It means seeking the lost, and the lost are unattractive to those of us who are saved. I hope one of the reasons is not just that you have a healthy desire to avoid them, but it also says in one of the books I was reading about this text that some people don't really want to associate with sinners because they feel a sense of superiority. Spiritual superiority can be a very dangerous thing. So here's your, it's a simple cure for it. You're going to feel good about this. This is your superiority pill if you need it take it as often as you need it every time you start to feel superior to that sinner out there remember this jesus god before creation humbled himself and became a man like us dying for our sins though he was innocent that we might know the power of god's love every time you feel superior because you're saved or you're a Christian or you don't do that or the other, then you remember that Jesus didn't feel superior to anybody. And until you think you're superior to Jesus, you don't need to feel that way either. But if you do, call me. Come to my office. I promise you I can humble you quickly. No matter who you are, what you've done, or how accomplished you are in living this Christian life, I promise you, I can help you remember that we're all sinners who need a gospel feast. The point it makes is if we feel superior, if we have this health, so healthy a desire to cleanse ourselves from the stains of the world, then we separate ourselves from the world in such a way that we lose contact 
with those who don't know God's grace. That we lose our empathy for those who are lost and dying. That we forget our work as a body of Christ. We are Jesus on this earth. And if we're not Jesus on this earth, then they are never going to meet him. That's what the church's work is to do. We must not forget the grace that we received. Yes, I get it. I'm a man of many passions. You've been witness to some of them this morning. And they were not always corralled for Jesus. It's never hard for me to remember that I'm still a sinner appropriating God's grace for the ongoing work of salvation in my heart. I need Jesus' forgiveness every day I breathe. I need it. I crave it. I must have it. I'm guessing that most Christians feel that way too. They just forget it. Sometimes because they're afraid of those other people who don't live like we do. Yes, I know. There's another sermon about being safe and not being tempted beyond what you can stand, and we don't want our children attempted and discouraged. Some of you parents frightened you to death. You just told my kid to hang out with the worst at the school. I know. I figure if they get in a little trouble, it'll help you straighten up. <laughs> it'll bring you to your knees. I'm only half kidding about that. Your youth are stronger than a lot of the other youth in the community. I don't expect them to succumb to the temptations of their friends, but I don't expect them to shun their friends when their friends do. I expect them to love them and try to keep them within the fold. That's what I expect. The church can do no less than that and still be the church. You say, but preacher, some of them will reject what we offer. Yes, they will. Some of them will continue to do things that are terrible. Yes, they will. Do we continue to love them? Yes, we do. Because you never know when one of them is going to climb a tree looking for their salvation. I'm through now. I'm really tired. I'm tired about thinking about all the things I'm going to do between now and December the 15th when it's 7 p.m. in this place before the church council meets. And with the church council, I'm inviting the whole church to come and to see the plan. I'm going to be sharing parts of the plan with different committees as we go along. And then on that night after we hear the plan, we're going to retire after we take some questions from the audience, and we're going to vote on that plan, piece by major piece. And trust me, we won't be there in 30 minutes. We'll be there a while because what I'm going to ask the congregation to do is going to be untasteful, some of it. It's going to be risky. It's going to push you to who you are as a body of Christ. And I'm going to tell you now in advance, so you can start worrying about it early. I'm not going to apologize when I bring it. I believe bringing it because I believe that's what God has laid on my heart and on the ministry of this church for the future. You will tell me if I'm right or wrong. You will tell me if you see God in that plan. And you will join me in finding ways to do that plan or else we'll continue to be the congregation we've been. A slowly dying, typical United Methodist congregation, a little more spiritual than the average church, but still on the wrong way. Let's pray. Holy Heavenly Father, these are your children, every one of them. You love them, you care about them, you know more about them than I ever will. 
You have plans for us as a congregation, plans for us as individuals. You have plans for the funds we have. You have plans for the spiritual gifts we have. You have plans for the skills we've acquired. You have plans for the time we're given to breathe on this earth. You care about others even as you care about us. And you're calling us to join you in seeking the lost. If there's one here today, Lord, who does not know you who's lost, I pray they'll come forward this day and give their hands to you, their heart to you. There are those here, Lord, who are Christians who are just kind of wandering around Carrollton, Texas, or wherever they may live, looking for a place to join, but never feeling at home. I pray, Lord, they'll be moved to know this is a place where they can get a free lunch today and take part in providing the gospel feast for others in the years to come. Let them come forward, Lord, as we stand and sing. If you're moving in their hearts, I ask in Jesus' name.